ask that you stay standing for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 13. As you're turning there, just think. They must have cheered when the risen Lord, who had given himself for their sins, appeared to his disciples and said, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Great Lord! And then somebody must have thought, how are we going to do that? <laughs> Acts 13 tells us how. It begins this way. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who sermoned Barnabas and Paul and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, or that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the state path, straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. We end our day worshiping the Lord, but this day, this Sunday, already more Christians have named the name of Jesus in China than in the United States. When the communists threw the missionaries out of China in 1948, very few identified as Christians in China. Now it's a smaller fraction of the population than the fraction that call themselves Christians in the U.S., but there are so many people in China that that fraction numbers more than all the Christians in the United States. There are more Christians in Africa on this day that will 
name the name of Jesus as Lord than in the United States. At the beginning of the last century, a bare fraction of persons would have identified as Christians in Africa. Now over 500 million people identify as Christians in Africa. Half a billion people, more than all the people in the United States, identify themselves as Christians in Africa. The most rapidly growing church in the world is in Iran. Persecuted, underground, thriving. More Muslims, I told you today, have come to Christ in the last 15 years than in the last 15 centuries. We think of the Western world as being dead to Christianity, but if you were to go to London on this Sunday, you would have found that the largest churches worshiping are African in origin or Caribbean. In Texas, we like talking about the size of our churches, but the largest churches in Texas are Hispanic. The largest PCA church is Korean in origin. I, I don't just cite statistics at you to wow you, but to make you understand and feel the weight of a recent interview of the evangelist Francis Chan who said, we do no greater damage to the work of the Holy Spirit in prospering the gospel than to look in the New Testament and say, that work of the Holy Spirit is just ancient hyperbole. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. He is working in our day and in our time. He works in different cultures and different ways. But the Holy Spirit is at work if we will but have eyes to see it and get in step with the work of the Spirit. It is always the calling of the church, almost cliche for us, to say that if we want to have the blessing of God upon our ministry, we identify where the Spirit is blowing and we set our sails to the wind of the Spirit. Sounds easy. How do you do that? After all, when we look at the book of Acts, we ourselves, with our sophistication, have the great tendency to fall back into cynicism. Well, it's not going to happen that way now. Or it can't happen in this culture. The Holy Spirit can't really blow the way he did in the book of Acts. What if Christians then had believed it? After all, the Spirit has been blowing hard Jesus has been crucified, but risen from the dead by the work of the Holy Spirit. And after that rushing wind and fire that appeared at Pentecost, what began to happen? There are Jews who have gone to give sacrifices of animals in Jerusalem, and they are converted by the thousands because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The church is growing rapidly. There were being added to the church daily, such as believed. So many so that even the priests in Jerusalem start to believe in Jesus. And it's at that moment that the Jewish authorities have enough of that. And so with Roman help, they begin to persecute those who identify with the name of Jesus. It, it rises to a climax that we read about as one named Saul holds the cloaks of those who stone Stephen. But it's not just Stephen who is killed. 
Saul has a commission to imprison and torture and kill and take from families any who would identify as Christian. And in that persecution that is intended to crush the early church, what happens instead is that Christians become like seeds on the wind, taking the gospel across the ancient world. And one of the key places that they land and take root in the soil is in that that strange land bridge between the Middle East, Europe, Asia, and Africa that we call Asia Minor. And there in a town called Antioch, there is a church formed where they first called themselves what? Christians. And we see the first missionary journey. What establishes that church? What what is the response of people who experience the work of the Spirit and they say, Spirit, we don't understand. We can't make sense of what you're going to do. But we lift our sails to the Holy Spirit and say, blow, take us where you want us to go. And the first sign of that is remarkable unity in humility for the work of God. We hardly can see it because we don't understand the significance of the names in the very first verse of Acts chapter 13. It's, it's virtually a roster of the leaders of the church at Antioch. The first name identified is Barnabas. And for those of you, it's obviously the holy and educated people that come on Sunday night um, who know who Barnabas is. You know his name just means encouragement. Son of encouragement. And we, we love that. I mean, what a sweet-natured guy he must have been. That his parents named him Barnabas, and he continued to take that character into the missionary journey with Paul. Paul, who's going to go to the Gentiles, goes with Barnabas. Do you know why that's important? Because Barnabas, though he has a Jewish name, has been raised in Gentile culture on the island of Cyprus. Guess where Paul first went on his first missionary journey to the Gentiles? Did you catch it? It's at the end of verse 4. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to what? To Cyprus. It's almost as though the Lord had planned it. That a generation before, Jewish parents had gone to Cyprus, raised this Barnabas to know Greek Gentile culture. And when the missionary to the Gentiles, Paul begins his first missionary journey, who goes with him? An encourager named Barnabas who knows Greek culture to the Greek island of his own hometown. Isn't that sweet? Except it's not all sweetness. At the end of verse 5, you may remember, we are told, and they had John to assist them. Who is that? That's not John who wrote the book of John. That is John Mark, depending on your translation, a nephew or a cousin of Barnabas. He went back to his hometown too. But I'll ask you an honest question. Who do you most hate witnessing to? Your family. They remember you in high school. They know your faults. They know your weaknesses. They know all your hypocr hypocritical actions and words. 
And here is Barnabas. He has to go back to Cyprus. And he, what does he do? He abandons Paul and Barnabas. And as a consequence, when Paul and Barnabas come back and get ready for the second missionary journey, Barnabas has a great idea because he's an encourager. Let's take John Mark with us again. And what does Paul say? No way. And there is a falling out between Paul and Barnabas that lasts for years because the coward of Cyprus named John Mark had split them up. Sounds terrible until you remember that John Mark was the same man that the Lord commissioned to write Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Every time you open your Bible to the New Testament and you come to the gospel of Mark, what you are reading is the gospel on display. There is the coward of Cyprus redeemed, restored, used as God says, forgiven, accepted, and restored for the gospel's purpose. For people who think, I've messed up so badly, I can't be used. God will turn his back, his people made you turn their back on me. God says, look at Mark. He was the one that I did not give up on. He is the testimony of the gospel. And we don't just learn that from the first name on the list of Barnabas, his uncle. The second name on the list is Simeon or Simon who is called Niger. Now, Niger just means black. And some of your translations will say that, like Nigeria. And the fact that he's Simon called black seems undoubtedly to be a reference to his skin color. And you think, well, how could a man with a Jewish name like Simeon or Simon have black skin? And, and you don't remember because it's such a minor point in biblical history that after David had the promise that he would ultimately through his lineage have a kingdom that was universal and eternal that one of his descendants was named Asa. And Asa to extend the boundaries of David's kingdom went as far as North Africa to establish a colony of Jews. And sometime in the history of Simeon of Niger, one of his ancestors, married an African. And so even now he has a Jewish name, but African skin. And yet the church is saying, our ethnicities are not going to be boundaries to the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for all people, all nations were to be blessed by our father Abraham. And the church is actually acting upon that blessing when it receives Simon called Niger, and even still you don't get the full picture. Do you know what that area of North Africa was called? Cyrene. There was in the church of Antioch a leader whose name was Simon of Cyrene. Ring a bell for anybody? There was that time, you may remember, when Jesus was fainting under the weight of the cross, having been flogged with loss of blood and loss of strength. He stumbled under the weight of the cross that he was being forced to carry. And a Roman guard just grabbed somebody out of the crowd off the streets and said, you carry the cross. And that one who was called to carry the cross of Jesus was named what? Simon of 
Cyrene. And John Stott, a great scholar, pastor, says there can be no doubt that this is the one who carried the instrument of the torture and the murder of Jesus. And he is not merely an African. He is one who would be hated by any reasonable Christian. And yet he has been forgiven, restored, redeemed, and respected in the church of Jesus Christ because he is just a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us. And there he is in the leadership along with Lucius of Cyrene. For the first time, we get a Roman name, not, not Jewish. What do you mean a Roman name? I thought the Romans were the ones who became the instrument of the Jewish authorities to drive people out of Jerusalem. That's right. So here is a man who is associated with the oppressors of Israel. And he's not merely Roman in name. He's also from where? Cyrene, he's Africa, says John Stott. Undoubtedly, this is one of those Africans who had gone to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost and believing in Jesus had been driven out with the rest of the Jewish Christians. And now he's a Roman African who's a leader in the church at Antioch. And Stott says, it almost gives, think of this, it almost gives you goosebumps to recognize in that very first church where they called themselves Christian, there is this cadre of African believers who's in leadership for the sake of the mission of the church. And working beyond boundaries and bigotries is only beginning to take shape as we read the passage. Because along with Lucius of Cyrene was Menaean, a lifelong friend. Some of your translations say a foster brother. Some of your translations say a member of the court. The Greek just says raised with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod from his household. Maybe even a foster brother of Herod. What, what Herod is this? It was this Herod's father to whom the wise men came. Show us where was the one who was born king of the Jews. And this Herod's father said, well, I'm not sure where he is. Why don't you find him? Then come tell me so that I can worship him. The plan was not to worship him. What was the plan? To murder him. And when the wise men being warned by an angel went another way home, what did this Herod's father do? He ordered the murder of all the infants of Bethlehem. But you say, that's not this Herod. No. But this Herod has blood on his hands too. Because it was this Herod whose daughter danced an erotic dance that so stimulated her father that he said to her, what? Tell me whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And what did this Herod's daughter say? Give me the head of John the Baptist, because he's been preaching against my marriage to your father's wife. And when she asked, this Herod gave the head of John the Baptist to his dancing daughter. It wasn't the end of what he had done. It was this Herod who killed Philip. It was this Herod 
who had the Christians imprisoned. It was this Herod who caused such suffering that families have lost home and livelihood and family members. And now you walk into the church at Antioch, having been driven from Jerusalem, and in the leadership of your church is Menaean. Just imagine. Imagine that, that you had been in the airport in Afghanistan when the Taliban have forced you to lose all that has been dear to you, when you may have seen your own family members killed, when you have lost your home, you've lost your livelihood, you lost your future, and you get to the United States, and you, and you walk into a church, and one of the people that calls themselves a leader is a Taliban general. Would you stay? Or would you turn on your heel and walk away? Manan, you can almost hear any of the Christians say, listen, listen, I, I can worship with a Jew who has a bad nephew. I, I can worship with a Jew who has a different colored skin. I can even worship with a Roman who has a different colored skin. But Manan, don't make me do that, God. That is a bridge too far. I, I can't stay in a church with a man like that. And if you can't stay in a church with a man like that, you're going to be more troubled by the last name. Because the last name on the list is what? Saul. And he's the one who went with the troops to gather the heads of homes to put them in prison. And if they would not go to murder them, and to separate family and ultimately be the instrument of driving all these people from their homes. And they get to Antioch. And there is Saul. What would you do? Do you understand the humility that would be required to be in unity in the church? To look past animosity and pain, and hurt, and abuse, and separation, and huge damage, and say, but, but I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and so is that person, and I'm going to bow before the grace of God, and receive what the Holy Spirit is doing, and say, God, if you want them, I will receive them. So much of what happens in our church in this day, you must know, is that that all the abuses and the polarities of culture where people know their politics better than they know their theology comes into the church and we speak in such despicable, malicious terms about one another. We are so willing to put away from ourselves and put out of the church people who disagree with us, people who have hurt us, people who are unlike us in the way they've expressed themselves. And we see how in the church, what God was doing before the watching world is bringing people together of all sorts of ethnicities and skin colors and beyond their backgrounds and saying, they're all under the banner of the gospel of Jesus. And that was supposed to make a difference. When, when Paul prayed for all you teachers up here, he prayed about the manifold wisdom of God. Do you know where that's from? That, that, that's from Ephesians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says, in the church at Ephesus, 
where Jews and Gentiles are gathering together in one of the most immoral cities of the ancient time. He says, when, when we get together in unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, in the church of Jesus Christ, the manifold wisdom of God is on display before the authorities and powers in heavenly places. Do you know what that means? The, the New Testament translators, when, when they talked about Joseph's multicolored coat, do you know what word they used? Same word. The manifold colored coat of Joseph. And now the Apostle Paul says, when, when we in the church move past boundaries and bigotries under the mantle of Jesus Christ, that that the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God is on display before the world so that even the angels and the demons look at the church and say, my, what a God. If he can get those people together, this gospel must be something. It's what the church is supposed to represent to the world. The alternative society where the message and the manner of Jesus is on display, where people say, I, I don't know what that people believe, but whatever it is, I want some of that. Where's the end of their hatred? What is the cause of their joy? Why are they willing to be with one another with whom they so seriously disagree? To, to love beyond their differences, to forgive beyond the right that they have, to hate and be angry at other people. How does that happen? It happens because the manifold wisdom of God is the wisdom that we have for the sake of the gospel. If you think that unity in humility is difficult, then you have to say, well, how is it going to be expressed? So that the Spirit would blow in us and through us to the world. We actually know, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We are discovering the direction of the Spirit in devotion. While they were worshiping, here is corporate worship that continues. You and I know how, how difficult COVID has made our worship. And I, I speak as one that has family members who have serious autoimmune deficiencies, very difficult. We make decisions every Sunday about how we will worship and where we will worship. But let me tell you something. If the church is never able corporately to worship, to say we are going to demonstrate before the world what the gospel is, as difficult as it may be for us, we lose the opportunity for the Spirit to blow through us in the witness of our gathering. They continue to worship. Now recognize what that means. Well, we don't have much income anymore. I, I, I'm not sure what my occupation will be. We don't have our home. We, I, we're separated from our relatives. We, we have all, and we have these awful people leading our church. <laughs> and they were worshiping the Lord. It becomes part of their testimony to the world. As they are gathering together for worship, it's how God is using. And it's not just corporate worship. I mean, that to itself is supposed to be powerful. I, I recognize it. Pastor Mark was nice to mention this morning that uh, most of the last decade I've been pastor of an historic church. 
I must tell you that, that when I went to Grace Church in Peoria, it's, you know, it's a large PCA church, and, and we were almost all entirely white Caucasian. But we're in Peoria, Illinois, where one of the world's largest employers pulls in engineers and doctors and doctors in training from all the nations of the world. Virtually none of them would come to our church. We started translating before they came. I mean, people would say, well, you know, after they start coming, we'll have translate. Why would they come if they can't understand? And so we started providing translators, translating into five languages every Sunday in the bulletin. And then when more people came, actually having simultaneous translation. And we begin to have people coming for English as a second language, people coming with different dress customs, different food customs, smell different than us, look different than us, wearing hijabs, sometimes coming out of mere loneliness to be with other people of their culture in our church. Why? They continued worshiping the Lord from all these different backgrounds and places in this cross-section of the ancient world called Asia Minor. Because they believed that was one of the ways that the gospel would be on display. Now, it's not always easy. I, I must tell you, I thought we had done a great job. And then I got a letter. Dear Mr. Chapel, when they address the pastor as Mr. Chapel, you know it's not going to be good. I have been compelled to write to you about something I feel very strongly about. I've moved away from home to attend my university, and with this move, I've had to seek a new church. The church I've been attending makes a huge effort to reach out to the community. The worship consists of hymns, contemporary to gospel, songs even in different languages, all even within the same service. I felt motivated by the Holy Spirit. Now, you just know this is not going to go well, you know. I, <laughs> to write you about this because I, I felt with the amount of diversity at grace, which means not much, if we started doing the same, whatever lines or walls stood between people who feel out of place and not welcomed, those lines would start being erased. Scripture was read, not just in English, but in other languages. I know it would be a hard transition. Well, you can say that again. The worship leaders of this church told me how difficult the transition was. It was something that made people stretch and grow, and I know, and complain. Uh, but, but in the end, everyone benefited. I know we already have incorporated ESL, but I feel like our church can take an extra step into embracing the whole body of Christ. Now listen, when, when you get a letter like that, you can have a couple of responses as a leader of the church. One response is this. How dare she? And the other response is, how blessed are we that one of the children of our church actually believes what we taught her. That all are made in the image of God. That everyone is precious. And that God shows his heart when we express it in the church. That 
reality is so strong that it will stretch everything in us, challenge us at every level as God is fulfilling the message of the church being the blessing upon the nations. Maybe that's why we read after they were worshiping the Lord together, we read they were fasting in verse 2. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now we get that part about laying hands on them and praying. We did it tonight. It's good. It's important. It's the church saying, we are behind this ministry. Here it's mission. It's also teaching. That's part of our mission. It's when we have new leaders in the church. We lay on hands. We pray and lay on hands. And, and, and we get it. I mean, praying is what good Christians do. But it doesn't just say praying. It also says they were fasting and praying. Now, I, I was raised in a tradition where, you know, all Christians pray, but real Christians fast. <laughs> I mean, you know why you fast, right? I mean, I mean, you fast so that you can focus on Jesus. My problem was always when I fast, I only focus on McDonald's. You know, I, you know, I can't think of anything else. And it feels like you have failed. But, but what is prayer? Prayer is a confession of our inability to do what God is calling us to understand or do. It's bowing before the Lord and saying, Lord, I can't do this. I need your help. Please enter my reality, my world. Give me strength. Give me ability. Give me wisdom for what needs to happen. I can't do this apart from you. Do you recognize that fasting is the physical representation of that prayer. That what we do when we fast is we're saying, not by my strength, not by my ability. It's just the, the ancient word of the prophet, right? Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Do you, do you know where that actually comes from? That comes from the Old Testament where we read, this is the word of the Lord to God's people. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain in our way? Before this leader of God, you mountains shall become a plain. And the Lord shall bring forward the top stone from the mountain before the people of God as they shout, grace. Grace, grace to all. It's saying, I can't do this, Lord. And, and, and so I'm coming to you, not in my strength, but without nutrition, hungry as I come, acknowledging in my weakness you show yourself strong. What if hunger were not failure but worship? As we're saying, Lord, I'm willing to be weak. I'm willing to confess that, that, that I can't do this in my strength. And my hunger is actually the acknowledgement that I'm putting everything on the line for you. I'm hungry because I'm not going to go in my strength or my ability. I'm, I'm going to seek you. And, and, and we have to because of what we're being called to do. Where did they go on this ministry? You, you read already, verse 4, they sent out the Holy, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, Barnabas's, and John Mark's hometown. But you read in verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Well, that's Paul's home people, his home place. Which means each one of the believers on this mission trip 
first went to those they were closest to. Man, you may need some prayer and fasting to do that. God, help me to speak to my husband who's estranged from you. God, help me to speak to my kids who think that my faith is foolish. God, when we gather for holidays this year, would you give me an opportunity to speak to my family? Because I'm not sure I can do it if you don't help me. I'm not talking about being tactless. I'm not talking about manipulating people. I'm talking about the love of Christ flowing through you and asking God to give you the words and the opportunities and, and praying for it because you can't do it apart from him. And to recognize even as you do so, he might even take you beyond families to enemies. I mean, we get this strange account that remember when they, they actually go, they are opposed by somebody who has the name of Jesus, bar Jesus, a magician who carries on him the name son of Jesus, but he's actually opposing the gospel. Are there people in your realm, in this culture, who are going to oppose the gospel that you may need to speak to? Do we have spiritual enemies around us? I will tell you, if we actually challenge our culture and often the academic world around us and its conclusions, that gender is fluid, that same-sex relations are to be celebrated, that marriage is optional for sexual intimacy, that divorce is inevitable, that life begins and ends where it's convenient, that political animosity is acceptable, particularly if they talk bad to you first, that inequities in our culture can be ignored as long as they don't affect us, that sexual exploitation can be partaken of as long as you're not found out, are we going to have to speak to enemies? Maybe we'll have to pray. We might even have to say, Lord, in my strength, I can't do this. Oh, Lord, grace, grace, more grace. Not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit. I need your grace now. I need your grace or I can't do this. But when the grace comes, what happens? Not only did Paul and Barnabas speak to family and to enemy, they went to power. Do you remember? The governor, the proconsul, sees what happens to Bar-Jesus when the judgment of the Spirit falls upon him. And what happened in verse 12? The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened. If we would be willing, by the way that we worship and pray and step away from our strength to do the work of God, we might even be able to speak to family and to enemy and to power and see God work. What would that be like? I will tell you, just this last fall, I was scheduled to be the speaker at the Hong Kong Bible Conference. A normal year, a quarter million people gather in Hong Kong for the Hong Kong Bible Conference. Between COVID and the government crackdowns, that did not happen. I received a note from the organizers of the Hong Kong Bible Conference, Dr. Chapel. As you know, the COVID virus is widespread across China, causing tens of thousands to need treatment. In Hong Kong, all public activities are suspended, schools closed, church meetings ended. As the scheduled speaker 
of the Hong Kong Bible Conference, we'd like to invite you to write a short message to the saints here that we would be encouraged and inspired. And I must tell you, when I got that email, I thought to myself, who am I to write to these people who have undergone persecution, who are far better witnesses than I, who are strong for the Lord. Some of them have been imprisoned, my own friends. How, how can I write to them? All I know is to tell them the scriptures. I wrote back as I read the challenges you now face in China, I write to tell you that the eyes of the worldwide church are upon you, the eyes of the angels are upon you, and most of all, the eyes of King Jesus are upon you. Even when we do not know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groans too deep to utter, according to the will of God, so that all will be worked together for good. These temporary afflictions are working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory for brothers and sisters in Christ. To this we know you were called for such a time as this. It is believers in another land, but our brothers and sisters who have said, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the difficulty, we will worship and we will pray and we will testify to family and to enemy and to power. And as they have done so, you and I both know what has happened. The gospel is like fire across China, even in a time of persecution. What has happened? But that opposition has become the Holy Spirit's opportunity. Our difficulties, doorways to the gospel. God is at work. He will work through us as we say, God... Bring us together in humility, give us unity. In our weakness, make us strong. In our confession of our need of grace, make the gospel strong among us. Oh, Holy Spirit, blow, Spirit, blow. Blow, Spirit, blow. We lift our sails to you. Use us, we pray, for the Holy Spirit's witness that the manifold wisdom of God might be in evidence in this place. And Jesus Christ rule. Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Heavenly Father, blow, we pray, by the work of your Spirit, and let us lift our sails, whether it be easy or difficult. Unite us by making us humble before your purposes. Encourage us by the reality of the Spirit. May we never say it's ancient hyperbole, but our calling for this day as brothers and sisters across the world are living, standing for the truth of the gospel, so may we, before family and enemy, speaking truth to power, that Jesus Christ might be known. Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.